Welcome to the Grace Life Church podcast. My name is Parker Smith, lead pastor of Grace Life Church, located in Decatur, Alabama. Our prayer is that the sermon you're about to hear will help you grow in your understanding of God's Word, point you to the person of Jesus Christ, and encourage you to live for the glory of God. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Grace Life Church podcast. Again, a word of welcome to our guest here this morning. And if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open with me uh, to the epistle of First Peter. Um, given the theme of our kids' jam camp, I wanted to just take a brief detour from working our way through the book of Philippians. That is our normal practice and working through books of the Bible. And we're in a sermon series right now through the book of Philippians and we're coming in to chapter three. And so just given the week, I just thought we would just take a brief pause and uh, just kind of look at what Peter would say to us in first Peter. Um, Over the course of this past week, we learned several lessons about the Lord Jesus and about what Peter would learn. And and the first night of our kids' jam camp, we looked at uh, Peter and the disciples and they had been fishing all night. They hadn't caught anything. And Jesus calls them uh, to follow him. And before he does that, he gives them a command to uh, cast their nets uh, for a catch, even though they'd been fishing all night and they'd caught nothing. And that they recognized that God had done a miracle through Christ and that Christ is holy. And Peter's recognition is that Jesus is holy And he falls down before him. Second, we saw when the disciples were distressed and Jesus is coming to them and they think it was a ghost. And Jesus comes to them walking on the water. And then Peter asks to walk on the water with the Lord Jesus. And he begins to do so. And then only he begins to doubt and he begins to sink. And in that, recognizing that Jesus is trustworthy. And then thirdly, on Wednesday, we saw Peter's denial And we saw ultimately how that denial would lead towards Peter's restoration a little bit later. And we saw and recognized that not only is the Lord holy and not only is the Lord trustworthy, but we also saw and we do see and realize that Jesus is also forgiving. And so I just wanted to spend some time this morning unpacking and completing, if you will, the story of Peter and consider some truths that he would impart to us really a couple of decades later in, from the Gospels and writing in the book of First Peter. Peter in this book is writing to an audience of Gentile Christians. They are experiencing persecution and suffering because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And Peter is writing them to encourage them to believe and to be steadfast, even though they are experiencing suffering and distress in a present evil age. Peter does this primarily of by reminding them of the future reality and the future glory that is to come. And he encourages them to persevere, knowing that there is coming a reward and their salvation because of their hope in Christ. Peter encourages them then to live a godly life, to live as good citizens, to be model slaves and to be gentle as wives and understanding as husbands. And this will indicate that they truly have placed their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ rather than placing their hope in this world. This is the specific suffering that is going on in this text or going on in this book is discrimination. It's mistreatment. It's a type of 
verbal abuse, if you will, from former colleagues and friends that we have noted in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. And as you know, the lines between discrimination and mistreatment and physical punishment are often a thin line and one can often lead and does lead to the latter. And he is speaking of this bad treatment of these people precisely because they are followers of Jesus Christ. That is because they are Christians. Perhaps they were treated favorably before, but now as Christians, they are having a hard time and having to endure hardships for the sake of Christ. And this happens, Peter says over and over again, because we are a chosen race. We're a royal priesthood and we are called to suffer and join Christ in his suffering. And all of these things, as Peter writes, are escalating and the persecution will likely get more worse and more harsh. And so Peter writes them to encourage them. And it's here that we find ourselves in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. And I just want to invite you to stand as we read together this great text of scripture and unpack it this morning. Peter writes this, it's in this rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, would you say amen this morning? If I could summarize the sermon in, in one sentence, I would say it in this way. It's that trials come, but rejoice because Jesus is better. Trials come, but rejoice because Jesus is better. I want to call your attention to a number of things this morning. And really my aim is to be like the waves of an ocean and time and time again, just landing upon the shore. And so that may Christ may push to the surface and it may sound like a broken record, but the record's not broken. But instead, Christ has been broken for us. And he has given his very life and may he be exalted this morning over this text over and over and over again. Trials come, but rejoice because Jesus is better. Point number one, I want you to see joy in trial. If you notice how Peter begins in this text, in these verses, he says, rejoice in this, to which I ask, in what? He is pointing his audience pointing them forward. Is he pointing them forward to trials or is he pointing them back to something that he has mentioned before? And the answer to that is he's doing both. Peter is borrowing back from his previous argument in verses three through five. And by doing so, he's propelling them forward into a greater truth. He looked back and it says that God has caused us to be born again to this living hope, to this resurrection, a glorious inheritance that is guarded, that is being kept in heaven, that is ready to be revealed. And Peter now says in this rejoice that the truth about Christ has changed everything. And it's also changed the way that we view and how we live in the midst of trials. He said it should cause us to rejoice even if you've been grieved by various trials. The word here for grieved literally means to be sorrow-filled. It means to be sad, 
All of us know that feeling of being sad or to being sorrow-filled, to be let down like you've been punched in the gut. And the same word is used in the New Testament to describe a man that you may recall from Matthew chapter 19. He was a young man. He was a rich man. And he was maybe even perhaps a ruler. Life was grand for him. Life was great for him. And in great optimism, he comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Keep the commandments. Ah, well, that's good. Which ones did you have in mind, Jesus? And in Matthew 19, verse 18, Jesus said to him, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Great. I've done them all. Anything else? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go and sell all of your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And the scripture says that on account of these things, when he heard them, he went away sorrowful. There it is. Same word. Because he had great Possessions. It's the feeling of having the greatest dream on the brink of becoming reality only to have them crushed by heartache. Jesus in speaking to his disciples in Matthew 17 as they were, they were gathered in Galilee. Jesus said to him, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and raise him up on the third day. But he will raise him up on the third day. And his disciples were greatly distressed. We're sorrow-filled. This is most likely the example Peter has in mind, though, is in John 21. That is when, when Peter was restored to the Lord, and Jesus comes, and after he had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved, that is sorrow filled, because he asked him a third time, do you love me? This notion of being grieved, to be deflated almost, to be sorrow filled. When was the last time, Christian, that you've experienced the crushing sorrow like this to the point of grief, not because of sin, but because of your faith in Christ? Perhaps we have experienced this feeling of sorrow, very similar to what Peter experienced in John 21 because of our own failure or perhaps because of the young ruler, if you will, but just because we didn't get the news that we wanted. But yet here are these Gentile Christians who have been grieved not because of any sin or because of any wrong that they've done, but because they are now being tempted and are suffering various trials because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And so maybe it's better to ask us this, this question, would we have a faith that responds to trial in a sorrowful, grievous way, but instead rather with what Peter tells us to, and namely that with joy? Because this was the example of Christ. This was the path in which Peter expects us to walk into as well. And he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, For this you have been called to follow Christ, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Peter is aiming in this entire book that when we experience this type of soul-wrenching, faith-stealing, trial and testing, that we would meet them with joy. 
This is the consistent theme or truth you found within the New Testament as well. It is so similarly striking to that of the book of James. To count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And this is the type of rejoicing that Peter is arguing for. It is that if you know this gospel... And if you have been born again to this living hope, if you know Christ, verse 8, that we too would experience joy. That's why Jesus would say to his disciples in John 15, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Christians, are you experiencing joy even in the midst of suffering? And we'll come back to this later and what he means by that. But Peter means to tell you that your rejoicing would not just be a rejoicing, but it would produce something within you. Which leads us to point number two, that faith is to be accompanied by fruit. Same thing happens in the book of James that we just quoted. Note the language that James continues. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And that is what Peter is aiming towards in this text as well. Note the language. In this you rejoice, verse 6, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, now verse 7, so that the purpose of that is that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter now points us twice to a causal reality of our rejoicing. The purpose of your rejoicing in the midst of trials, even though you are grieved, is so that something. Number one, the tested genuineness of your faith. Peter speaks of the example of the purification of gold being placed into a fire and removing imperfections and all that would be impure would be destroyed and that your faith would not be shown as counterfeit but would be tested and shown as genuine, meaning that it's not faulty, it's not counterfeit, that it's like gold, that it endures, that it doesn't just turn to ashes but it perseveres. And Peter continues and says that your faith is much more precious than gold and is lasting. And secondly, that two, it may be found to result in something. That this rejoicing in this is so that when tested, it would be shown as genuine and would, would, would result in what? In praise, in glory, in honor. That is approval, that is high honor in showing the supreme value of your life and faith, that your faith is producing fruit. The fruit of praise, not of me, but of Christ. The fruit of glory, not of my glory, but of Christ's glory. And the fruit of what is most precious to me. And Peter says it's Jesus, and it's been Jesus, and it's always been Jesus. And even though these trials come, and yes, they are grievous, but I've kept my joy. And I've kept my joy so that even in this testing, my faith would be proven as genuine. And the end result would be that Christ is magnified and Christ is exalted and he is seen as most precious to me. It's what the psalmist would say in Psalm 73, say, who have I in heaven but you? 
And on earth, there is no one I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart, they may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That is the intent that Peter means to point us to, even in the midst of trial, that your true hope and treasure would be seen. Faith in Christ would be seen as precious. Christ would be honored, treasured, and praised, and seen as most precious to you. So he continues the way that he does logically because it is resulting in pointing to point number three, the triumph of Christ. Notice in verses eight and nine, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter says first in the past tense, though you have not seen him, you love him. Then in the present tense, though you do not now see him, you believe and rejoice with inexpressible and filled with joy that is filled with inexpressible, filled with glory. That is love. That is belief. That is rejoice. That's the language that Peter uses here in these two verses over and over again. Peter loves to build triads as he does in the first five verses of first Peter chapter one and will do throughout the writing of first Peter. But in speaking of love and the love of Christ, Peter means that we would have an earnest, unashamed affection for Christ, that we are passionately living and in love with him. Though we have not seen him, we have seen him revealed through his word. And though we have not seen him face to face, we do see him in his word. We see him in his scriptures and we love him of this belief, to believe in him. Peter aims that it would be much more than just an affirmation of Christian doctrine, but instead we would have this mind among ourselves to see that the work of Christ is true and we would bear and believe the gospel and it would change us and it would be a reliance and a dependence that we have upon Christ in the midst of suffering that we would endure even through trials. And this rejoicing... All of them, present tense, a loving and believing and rejoicing, a continuous and ongoing action to rejoice and enjoy Jesus, that we are filled with exuberance, filled with inexpressible joy in Christ, even in the midst of trial. It's why Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount, says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all types of evil things against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad for such as your reward is great in heaven. For they also, for they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Why in the world would we rejoice? Why would Peter point us to rejoicing? The simple answer is because Jesus is one. Christ is victorious. His gospel is true. We know the end. We know what Jesus is doing. And this is the same glorious truth that Peter proclaims in the gospel at Pentecost in the book of Acts chapter 2. And he quotes from our call to worship this morning, Psalm 16, verses 9 through 11. Acts chapter 2, verses 25 through 32. Peter says, For David says concerning of him, I saw the Lord always before me, 
for he is at my right hand and I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoice and my flesh will also dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make known me full of gladness and with your presence. He continues, brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and in his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would not set his whole one in, in, in sorry, I'm getting tongue tied there. He would not set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. So there's his hope pointing to the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades. That's the hope of David is what Peter is saying. And that's the hope that we have, Peter is saying. Nor did his flesh see corruption. Now watch the hope that Peter has in verse 32. That this Jesus God raised up and of that, we are all witnesses. Christian, what is your hope in this life? And what is your hope even in death? What is the point of all of this? Where is all of this headed? Where is all of this going? What is awaiting for us on the other side of this life? What is waiting for us on the other side of death? Some of you... No, and I've shared with some of you, I was talking with my wife just a few weeks ago, but over the past really less than 11 months, I performed some nine funerals in the past 11 months. And just over and over and over again, I'm, I'm doing these funerals and thinking about death and I'm watching people grieve and walk through that process, some personal and some a little bit more distant, but I'm watching these people go through and experience something that we all too will one day have to face. In the last funeral that I, that I partook in, it was a service for my grandfather and, and I was just sharing with some of the family just something a little bit personable to me that because of a trauma that took place in my life, and many of you know that my mother passed away when I was 11, and now looking back, I see that that was a trauma that took place in my life that I couldn't change, that I couldn't fix, that I couldn't do anything with that, but I had to bear with it, if you will. And the way that that would express itself in me is that I became so fearful of death and I would think about it and ponder it, and it would, it would be like a haunting for me. And I would wake up many nights in my adolescent years in cold sweats and be just so terrified of what's coming next. And even into adulthood, I would wake up and sometimes still do and have to calm my heart back down with the, with the text of truth of like John 14. Waking up in cold sweats and just in a panic and to say, God, would you calm my heart in truth? But I was horrified of what could be coming, horrified of an, of an ongoing, endless eternity, if you will. But then it became, I became known to this realization that my greatest horror was not of something going on and on and on and on and on. No, there was a greater horror that I had. The greater horror that I had is that I was lost. 
And one day I would stand before a holy, righteous God and I would give an account for my life and I would have to give an account for my sin and my wrongdoing and I would have to stand before a living God and give an account for my soul. And the reality I want you to consider and feel this morning is that if you stand before God in your sin, you ought to shudder at the thought of that. Of standing before a trice holy God and give an account for what you've done here on this earth. That ought to cause us great horror that you and I have sinned against a holy, righteous God, and we are guilty and deserving of condemnation from him because by birth we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are following in our forefather Adam, and their sin has spread all in this world and is deeply rooted in our hearts. We are born sinners. But don't bless your heart because you've also chose to sin. You have willingly disobeyed God. You have chosen actively to revile against him. And these aren't just conceptual. These aren't just thoughts that you've had. These are actions that you have taken and you will stand before God and give an account for your sin. And if you know not Christ, you are under a curse and you will be condemned. But and only through Christ who has suffered on your behalf and redeems us to reconcile us. This is why Jesus would say the most quoted and most familiar verse in all the Bible for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Have you trusted in this gospel? Or are you trusting in your own good works, your own good deeds, your own flesh to pardon you? It'll never work. You need only the blood of Christ and you need precisely the blood of Christ and you need the hope of the gospel and you need the hope and belief in the gospel. And that was what these Christians had. They had believed the gospel they believed the gospel and they loved their Savior and they rejoiced in the salvation that Christ had obtained for them, the outcome of their souls, because they knew that they had been delivered. And Peter says that I'm a witness and I can testify to the validity of Christ's victory. He is triumphant. And he says, you have not seen him, but you love him. And you don't now see him, but you believe and you rejoice for you know of his conquering. And so when these trials come, let them come. And the worst that can happen to you, Christian, is that they kill you. And even then you win because Christ is victorious. He has not abandoned you and he will not abandon you to Hades. So in trials, Peter says, I rejoice. And I'm not rejoicing because I like it. I'm rejoicing because Christ is victorious. I rejoice in this not focused on my trials, though they have grieved me, I focus to Christ and I rejoice in this reality and I rejoice in him, realizing that ultimately joy can only come 
through Christ because joy is found in Christ. Joy in your trials can never be found in your circumstances, but only found in Christ. And amazingly, the good news is what Peter is calling us to unite in, that even in the midst of grievous trials, we look to Christ and we get joy and God gets glory because his son is victorious. Fourthly and finally, eternal perspectives. Peter, in his conclusion, points us to rejoice in this by aligning our perspective, if you will. Note the language through verses 6 through 9. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that, or in that, little while that the trials are coming, you have a purpose. It's so that something. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found. It is working towards something. The goal of something is that it would result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I think I can say it simply here is that when Jesus comes, he will bring to us something far more than just a mere end to our suffering. He will give to us more than just an end to our trial, to our suffering. And we need to be reminded of that, that there is an outcome. There is a salvation that's coming and there is a reward that Jesus intends to give to us. And this is why Paul would write in Romans chapter 8, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time will not be worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And while Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 4, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Christian, every ounce of your pain, every ounce of your hardship, every ounce of your endurance for the sake of Christ has been counted and is being counted and it will not be forgotten. Psalm 56, where he is collecting our tears in his bottle. And it's why Peter would write that a coming crown of glory is coming. And we're looking towards an imperishable inheritance that is undefiled and unfading and it is kept in heaven for us. That there is a reward that is waiting and is coming. Some will say that, well, you shouldn't talk about rewards. To which I say, well, why not? The Bible speaks of that. There is a reward, Christian, and your suffering is not meaningless and you've got to know that these sufferings that are happening are not meaningless they are working toward an eternal weight of glory it's why Jesus would say again on the sermon of the mount when these sufferings happen rejoice for great is your reward in heaven Paul also anticipates this reward when he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, as he is being poured out as a drink offering, that he is a, I have kept the faith, I have finished the race. Verse 8, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also those who have loved his appearing. James speaks of a crown of life that God will give to all those who have placed their hope in him. And Peter here 
is pointing us to the reward. And that reward is union with Christ. Christ himself is our reward. Watch Peter, what he does in 1 Peter chapter 4. He said, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you, when you are tested, as though something as strange is happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Paul says, Christ, when Christ is your life appears, there you will also appear with him in glory. And that when trials come your way, though they are grievous and though you are being tested, they are showing your faith to be authentic and showing that you, no Christian, know that one day it will all be worth it. And every drop of pain will be considered. It will not be wasted. It will not be meaningless. It is working towards an eternal weight of glory. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe And you rejoice and you keep on rejoicing and you keep on rejoicing and you keep on rejoicing because one day you know that you will see him. And in that moment, you'll know that it will all be worth it and every ounce of pain will be considered and you will see Christ and it will be worth it all. That your your joy and your reward is coming. But it's not so much about what you will get, but about who you will get and who you will receive, namely Christ in all of him. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known and praise God that one day we will be with our Savior, our Redeemer. But until then, Christian, know that you are sharing, you are partaking in, you are sharing in Christ's suffering even now and hoping in Him and sharing with Him the peace of Christ that He gives to you even now. You don't have to wait for the peace that Christ gives. It is yours in Christ Jesus. And it is in this way, through the peace of Christ, that we can rejoice even in the midst of trials. Because of Christ and being found in Him, and one day, soon and very soon, we will be united with Him, greater union with Christ, and we will see Him face to face. And for the non-Christian listening this morning that may be looking for that type of hope, that may be looking for that type of joy to have in life's difficult seasons, even in the midst of trials, non-Christian, I want to tell you, you could search the world a thousand times over and you will never find it in this world because it is only found in Christ and placing your trust in Jesus and Jesus alone and trusting Christ for salvation and crying out to him for mercy and crying out to him for grace and recognizing that yes, life is hard, trials is hard only to conclude, but I know and I believe that Jesus is better. You have opportunity even now to repent of your sin and trust Christ for salvation, to repent and believe the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who will believe in him. So as we come to a close this morning about rejoicing, even in the midst of trial, we'll point us back into Philippians chapter 3 next week as we continue working through this book, that we are to rejoice, even in the midst of hardship and trial, because we are looking to Christ 
who is triumphant, that we may produce fruit and the fruit of Christ that will endure to the end because we hope in him and not live through the eyes of the flesh, but have eyes of faith. Is that you this morning, beloved? Are you enduring? Are you persevering? Are you keeping the faith? Are you repenting? Are you trusting? Are you pressing into Christ and looking toward a greater union with him, a great hope and great glory with him? In this life, as our kids have learned in Kids Jam Camp, there will be a lot of twists and turns. And my prayer this morning is that we would look to Christ in the midst of our twists and turns of life that God gives to us and realize that He is faithful. He is faithful today. And He will be faithful until the end. And He is trustworthy. And He is trustworthy today. And He'll be trustworthy in the end, and he will be faithful and trustworthy even unto death. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Grace Life Church podcast. If you would like more information or have questions about Grace Life Church, please email us at gracelifedecatur at gmail.com or find us on Facebook by searching Grace Life Church Decatur. And if you live in the Decatur area, we would love for you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. Until next time on the Grace Life Church podcast.